Well, it is my joy to be back with you this morning, <clears throat> and I am thankful for Pastor Art and Luke for them filling the pulpit while I was away, and I know that you were treated to a rich study of the Word through their preaching, and just so thankful for the teaching of the Word of God that God has blessed us as a church with, and uh, we want to continue that this morning as we look at Psalm 63. We are in our summer series of Summer in the Psalms, and uh, this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 63. But before we get to the psalm, I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. question is, what, what is it that you center your life upon? What is it that you center your life upon? What is the defining core of your life, that, that thing that drives everything else, that set of values that resides deep within your heart and soul that causes you to make the decisions that you make and to live the way that you live. Everyone has their life centered on something. There's no one who has that spot in their soul empty. It, there's something there that is driving each and every one of us. And it's what gets us up in the morning and what causes us to pursue in life. And even for us as Christians who know that we have been saved by the grace of God, that, that the, the triune God has come to save us and to redeem us, and we know that our lives are given to Him, there can still at times uh, be a gap I assume you, you know what I'm talking about, where our confession is that we follow Jesus wholeheartedly, and yet sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of our week, and we sense that practically down in the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road, that our affections and desires and choices are not quite aligning with that confession. We know that Jesus is everything when it comes to our salvation, and we'll answer that on the test. But when it comes to our daily life, if we're honest, it doesn't seem like Jesus is central. Well, our passage today, Psalm 63, is going to help us to close that gap, help us to be able to see Jesus as central in all of life. Psalm 63, as the title of the psalm says, is written by David. And it says that it was written by David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, there are two possibilities for setting when this psalm was written, because David was in the wilderness more frequently than you and I are. Uh, in fact, for periods of time, he was in the wilderness. And the two main periods in which he was in the wilderness is, number one, when he was uh, being chased by Saul. And this was uh, after he'd been anointed by Samuel, but before he had taken the throne. And Saul was looking to kill all rivals, and so he was hunting down David. And David was frequently in the wilderness. First Samuel verses nine, or chapters 19 through 31 recount that. But the other time he was in the wilderness is when he was chased out of Jerusalem by his uh, rebellious son, Absalom. And this is later on in his life, recounted for us in 2 Samuel 15 through 19. And what really helps us break the tie between these two possibilities for the setting the, the time and location of this psalm is the fact that in verse 11, he mentions the king as a third-person reference to himself. And so it seems best to locate this psalm in that second part of his life when he was king, but he was chased out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom when he was the king. Now, the, the wilderness of Judah spoken of here, for those of you going to Israel with Doug Bookman, you're going to be able to see it firsthand. Uh, but you're gonna, what you're going to find is that it's remarkably similar to uh, if you just head east of here, you passed about Indio, and you start heading towards Phoenix, uh, you're going to land in a, in a desert, uh, rocky wasteland, and that's very similar to the wilderness of Judah, except with some deep uh, ravines and whatnot that are, are, are built in there. 
But it's just a very barren place, very rocky, very dry with little to no water. And David, with his entourage, his loyal subjects, his family, is walking across this wilderness to get away from Absalom and the treacherous men who are looking to take their lives. So as you can see, the, the circumstances of writing of this psalm are, are dire for David. He's not sitting in a lofty tower uh, comfortable with his, all his uh, royal uh, accoutrements around him. He is, he is on the run. His options are few. His future is uncertain. And so with that as a backdrop, let's read this psalm together. Let's hear the words of the Lord through the pen of David. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. In this psalm this morning, we're going to see four features of a God-centered life so that we too will seek God passionately. We want to learn from David who is pursuing the Lord, has put God at the center of his life. What is it about David and his walk with the Lord that we can learn ourselves? The first feature of a God-centered life that we can see here in this psalm is number one, desire for God. Desire for God. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. This psalm begins with a cry out to God. And we see first that his desire is personal. His desire is personal. He he doesn't just address the almighty creator of heaven and earth, but he calls this creator my God. Oh God, you are my God. He doesn't just believe in the existence of God. He doesn't just believe that there's a God out there, but the true and living God is his God. This prayer is not just to a higher power or whatever he thinks is God out there. In other words, to follow David's example, we must address the one true God. The God who has revealed himself in his word. This is the God David is addressing. David is not just addressing whatever the God he wants it to be. As is a common sentiment today that everyone can kind of have their own God and they can kind of make God whatever they want it to be. No, David is addressing the true and living God who has created the world and revealed himself. And he knows he belongs to this God. This is his God. But, but the fact that he knows this God doesn't lead him to complacency. In other words, he doesn't say, I know you, God, great, I got that, check that off the list, and now I can move on and kind of do whatever. But the fact that he knows this God moves him to greater passion in seeking that God. It, it, it's, it's a springboard to know God even more. I think too many people they see that as, as, as you know, this, this is security that now I know God and I'm good and now I can kind of move on and live life how I want to because I got the, the God thing figured out. But it's not the same for David. For David, he knows this God and it presses him on to know God even more. 
But I want you to notice that in the midst of the painful circumstances of him fleeing Jerusalem, leaving everything that he knows, and having to surrender his kingdom, essentially, to his mutinous son, what does he do? He goes to God in prayer. He goes to God in prayer. He doesn't just sit around the campfire and talk with his family and friends and counselors, although he very well may have done that. He doesn't just sit with his own thoughts. He defaulted to prayer. And I think this is instructive for you and I as well. Where do we turn to when the heat gets turned up in life? When the pain sets into our body, when when the circumstances around us change for the worst, where do we run to? What is our default? Do we cry out to the Lord and say, Oh God, my God, earnestly I seek you. If you are here today and you are feeling spiritually dry, maybe distant from God, then I encourage you to follow David's example and turn to God himself. No great uh, book at the bookstore uh, is going to turn you back to God like going to God himself, opening his word and praying and pouring out your heart before him. In fact, I want you to see in the psalm just before this, Psalm uh, 62 Verse 8, a verse I frequently remind myself of. He says, David writes in this psalm, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. When was the last time you poured out your heart to God? Not just going through your prayers of saying, God, please help this, please help this, thank you for this, thank you for that but pouring out your heart. That intimacy, that that revealing all, that transparency, that you want to get it all on the table. That's David's inclination. It should be ours as well. So we see that his desire is personal, but secondly, see that his desire for God is preeminent. It's preeminent, meaning it's his first priority. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. He's in the desert. He's fleeing. He's in horrible circumstances. And yet, what is first upon his mind? It's not where the next meal's coming from. It's not how he's going to get his kingdom back. But what's first upon his mind, what is, what is tugging at his soul and is just exuding out of him is a desire for God. Now, seeking for God, as the scriptures talk about, is not seeking for a hidden God, as if there's, uh, you have to kind of go look under rocks and hills and, and try to find this God because he has made himself uh, known through his word. He has revealed himself. So David knows who this God is. But when the scriptures speak of seeking God, and when we think about pursuing God or seeking God this morning in our own lives, we can see that this seeking God is is really a desire to know God more through his word. It's saying, God, I know who you are. I see the truth about you, but I want to know you even more. I want to take my knowledge to a deeper level. And and, And it's taking then that knowledge and looking to experience deeper intimacy with him in prayer. It's saying, God, I see who you are, but I want to I want to know that closeness deep down in my soul. And it's looking to to depend on him throughout, the, throughout daily life. God, I want to walk with you. I want to be close to you, no matter what comes my way. And this is the paradox for the believer, right? We've been given new life. We know the living God, and yet we want to know God more. In other words, we can be satisfied and thirsty at the same time. And really, that's, that's the reality of the Christian life, is we continue to see how satisfied we really are in Christ, and yet the more that we become satisfied, the more we want to know that God even more. Pursue him. Go to our knees in prayer. Seek to know his heart and be transformed by him. James, in James 4, verse 8, tells us to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We need to pursue God and move towards him. And and we seek the Lord not as as a religious hill to climb, This David is not on this religious treadmill of trying to please God and trying to meet the standards of this holy God. 
and thinking that if he just tries a little bit harder, then he's going he's to gain that sort of righteousness and God's going to be happy with him. Folks, the message of the Bible and the message of the gospel is that we can't try hard enough. We can't climb that mountain up to God. All, all, all roads don't lead up the mountain to God because the only road up the mountain to God is through Jesus Christ, through the Son of God who has climbed that mountain in his own righteousness and is carrying us with him. So for us to seek the Lord, this is not a message of, of, of just try harder. This is a message of, of looking at all that we have in Christ, depending upon him, resting in him, and then striving in the power of the Spirit to know Christ more. The gospel gives us the motivation and the power to seek the Lord. Children, now there's no kids for Christ today, and there won't be for the next few weeks. That means you get to sit in here and get to hear the same message as your parents. And so I want to encourage you, all, all of you children, can you hear me? All you little people, young ones, you guys waking up? Hearing me? Okay. I just want to encourage you this morning that you are not too young to seek the Lord. You are not too young to pursue God and make God first in your life. In fact, it's to your advantage to seek the Lord now when you're young, in your early in life, to listen to your parents and to set God as the first priority in your heart and your life. And yes, we mess up, and yes, we fail, but that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is for. It gives us forgiveness for us to keep trying and press on. So I encourage you, little ones, press on to know God more now and set him as first in your heart and first in your life, and you will reap the rewards and blessing of knowing God. Well, we've seen the... David's desire is personal, it's preeminent, and now we see his, the power of this desire. He says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I mean, he pulls this analogy that he is experiencing firsthand as he's walking over the rocks in the Judean wilderness with the beating sun, probably the same temperature as it is outside right now, here, he's experiencing walking with his family, and his loyal subjects. And yet he says that even though my body might be experiencing thirst right now, even more, my flesh and my soul is aching for the Lord. This, this thirst is, is all-consuming. You know that power of, uh, of when you're so thirsty. Maybe you've been on a hike and you haven't brought enough water. I know for me, it was in high school and I, had, I was doing... Uh, uh, preparing for sports, either soccer or basketball, and the coach is making us run and run and run, and, and your mouth gets that, that cotton sticky feeling, and you're just like, I need water, and, and it becomes this dominant thing in your heart and mind that you, you, uh, you, you realize you need water now. And David's saying that feeling is what his soul feels for the Lord. And he realizes it's only going to be satisfied with God. But not only do we see the power of this desire, that it's all-consuming to him, but we see the catalyst for his desire in verse 2. Look at it. It says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. What stirred his, this desire for God? What caused him to fuel this desire? He says that he reflects back to when he was, when he was worshiping God in the temple. I mean, again, he's out, he's out in the middle of the Judean desert, but he's, he's reflecting back, he's daydreaming, thinking back to that glorious time when he was worshiping the Lord in the temple. And there, as he's worshiping, he caught a glimpse of God's glory and power, and he longs for that again. Being in the temple enabled David to envision and behold the power and glory of the Lord in a unique way. And the memory of that time sparked his worship here in this desolate place. But notice that he doesn't need the temple to commune with God. He doesn't need to go back there in order to have a passionate, deep relationship with God. He's, in one sense, this separation from the temple and its ceremonies is a true test of David's devotion. 
Okay, yeah, that was great when you're there around this gold-laden temple and you're there worshiping God, but will, can you, with all the religious formalities stripped away, will you continue to seek God as passionately as you did before? And folks, this is good for us to think about, right? Is, is your Christian life dependent on the structure of church life? Does your affection and desire for God only swell when you're surrounded by other worshiping Christians and you're at Bible study and others who are following after God? Sometimes we need to evaluate our devotion to God separated from the ceremonies and the structures of the church. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't need the church, so don't think that I'm saying that. We desperately need the body of Christ. We need the church. The church was not an afterthought. It was God's plan A we need it. It's there for us and we, for us to contribute to. But in a hypothetical, separating ourselves, is, is our relationship with God separated from just the formalities and, and the realities of worship within the church? With all that stripped away, do I desire God above all else? Is he my first priority? So I ask, do you long for greater intimacy with God? Is a desire for God a characteristic of your life? This desire should, should creep into every area of your life as you're driving down the road to work, as you're uh, waking up and, and making breakfast, as we're sitting down to have a nice evening together. Our top priority should be desire for God, to see his name glorified to see his name magnified in our hearts and in our lives. And I pray that God would make that true in our lives. I pray that your heart aches with the longing that David writes of here, that, that you would know God in a deep and powerful way. So the first feature of a God-centered life is desire for God. The second feature is praise to God. The second feature of a God-centered life is praise to God. Look at verses three through five, and note all the expressions of praise that we see here. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So we see repeated throughout these verses this idea of praising God with lips, of lifting hands, of blessing the Lord. David is steadfastly committed to praising and blessing God. It's an overflow of his heart. He knows who God is. He's seeking God, and he just wants to exude with praise to God. But we see several characteristics of his praise here. First, we see that his praise is communicated verbally. His praise is communicated verbally. Verse 3 and verse 5 both speak of his lips. I mean, he, he's emphatic in terms of saying that when I praise you, I'm praising you through my mouth. My words are what I am praising you with. It comes out, as we know, in, in prayer and in song. And so we see that those lives that are centered on the Lord can't help but open their mouth and speak of how great and how loving God is. In this, we see that worship is not just an attitude. Worship is not just emoting to God, having a good feeling towards him. But worship is essentially word-based. It's speech-based. We speak to him. We sing to him about him. So his, his praise is communicated verbally. It's also expressed bodily. He says, I lift up my hands. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David's saying that, that, that my desire for you, my desire to praise your name comes through so much that I can't just stand there and do nothing. I've got to express it somehow. And so he says that he lifts up his hands. It's like it's surging through him. And I, there's an expression of closeness, a reaching to the heavens, a reaching out to the Lord. It's, I believe it's expressing a Godward disposition of the heart that he lifts up his hands to the Lord. We see that his praise is 
is also committed for a lifetime. In other words, this is not just a praise event. Not just a praise event. He says, look at verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. This was a commitment of his life. David says, I will praise you over the course of all my days. It's a declaration of a heart full of gratitude and awe. And he realized that God is worthy of all the praise that he can muster for all his life. And in order for us to do this, folks, in order for us to be a praising community, a worshiping community, we must ask for God's help. We must ask the faithful God to produce this praise in us. We can't just sit at home and say, okay, praise God, praise God, praise God, and try to muster it up ourselves. We've got to be compelled by the glory and the grace of God. And that's then got to fuel our worship authentically. And so we must do what David does here and cry out to God and say, God, earnestly I seek you. Please, I want to praise you all my life. I want my mouth to express your praise. Please work this in me that my, the praise of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. Letting those, those desires and, and, and deep affections and, and longings to just be expressed as we pour out our hearts to God. But we see also that his praise is sparked theologically. What spawns this praise? What causes him to say, I will do this my entire life? We see two aspects of God that cause him to do this. Verse 3 is the love of God, and verse 5 is the satisfaction that God brings. Look at first of verse 3 with me. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. See, David knew there in the desert when his kingdom looked like it was getting away from him, that the love of God was his greatest treasure. And this prompted him to praise. Essentially, he's saying everything can be stripped away. I mean, it essentially looks like it already is stripped away, but, but, but all of it can go because of the steadfast love of the Lord is better than all this, is better than life itself. The steadfast love or loving kindness here in verse 3 is the word hesed in the Hebrew. And it, a word maybe you've heard before, it speaks of the free love of God in which he chooses to show grace and kindness to his people. It's a characteristic of God that's rooted in his very character and that is expressed in his covenantal actions towards his people. Particularly in the Old Testament, we see him act towards the people of Israel through uh, Abraham and, and, and through the covenant with Moses and through the covenant with David as he continues to show himself a faithful and loving God. This is the way God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, where he says that uh, God passed before, him, before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, hesed, and faithfulness. Keeping, hesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, God had revealed himself as a God who's committed to love. Love freely and love steadfastly. And David found this love to be sweet. He meditated upon that love and it was his greatest treasure. And so I ask you this morning, is the love of God sweet to you? Is the fact that God loves you in Christ a treasure to you? Because we have this morning a greater display of the love of God than even David had in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in the cross that we see the love of God most magnificently displayed. You know the verses, John 3, 16. In fact, you little ones here can probably quote it to your parents, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world 
so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Can you say with David that the steadfast love of God is greater and better than life to you? Do you treasure it more than you treasure anything else on earth? This is what it means to be God-centered, gospel-centered, Christ-centered. It means to set our sights of our hearts upon what God has done for us in Christ through the cross and to have that delight our souls for all of eternity. And yes, we need to be realigned. And yes, we need to keep going back to the word of God. We need to keep our sights set upon this so we don't lose sight of that love because isn't it easy to lose sight of it? Isn't it easy to become distracted and to not see that love for all that it is? Well, not only did the love of God spark David's praise, but he says in verse 5 that something else sparked his praise. Verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David says that he also bursts out in praise because God has satisfied his soul. This is linked to that steadfast love. He didn't need the affirmation of other people. He didn't find his satisfaction from accumulating more stuff or from accumulating status. He wasn't satisfied because everyone liked him, because he was famous in the land, or because he had power. Because a lot of that was in jeopardy as he's out in the wilderness of Judah running away from his mutinous son. And yet that didn't bother him because his soul was satisfied in God. He knew God and God knew him. Now notice the imagery here. Uh, he says, fat and he, my soul was satisfied as with fat and rich food. I, I don't know about you, it makes me think of Thanksgiving, right? The big feast and you just eat till you can't eat anymore and you're just like, whoa, that was good. And David's saying, his soul is that bursting, that satisfied. My soul is happy in you, God. I don't need anything else. I'm content. You can, all that stuff can come before me. I don't need that because I'm stuffed. <laughs> I'm satisfied. Unfortunately, too few of us have this kind of appetite and, and experience this kind of satisfaction. We settle for, for substitutes that do not satisfy. It reminds me of uh, my daughters like to have a, have a play kitchen and have, have fake food that go with it, and they frequently serve me feasts in which they are bringing me dish after dish after dish of food for me to eat. Um, now, uh, it's obvious in that circumstance that that's not real food that can satisfy us, but let me propose to you that this world and your flesh and the devil likes to put fake food in front of you thinking that it's going to satisfy your soul, and we, we take it hook, line, and sinker. We, we, we consume it, and we wonder why we're still hungry, wonder why we're not satisfied, we wonder why we're not happy. It's because we've been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. We've been doing as the prophet Jeremiah says of the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that, that in, instead of going to the fountain of living water that's gushing water right in front of them, instead they're turning their backs to that and going to a cistern which was a hole in the ground to store water, but it's a broken cistern, which means it's dry, and they're sticking their head in that cistern and trying to lap up water. And instead they're getting mouthfuls of dirt. And they wonder why you're not, they're not satisfied. Because there's no water there. There's no satisfaction there. And folks, there's no satisfaction in this life for our souls. We were created to find our deepest delight in God alone. And it's when we're there, we can say with David that my soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food. And then it causes us to praise we say, thank you, God. Our lips are joyful, David says, to praise God for all that he has done for us, for satisfying us, for being that great treasure to us. So if we are 
to have God-centered lives, then praise must be a feature of our lives that is fueled by our contemplation on the gospel, on what Jesus has done for us, and to see the love of God displayed to us, and to realize that all that we have been given to us in Christ is enough to satisfy our souls. The third feature we see in this psalm of a God-centered life is a pursuit of God, is pursuit of God. We see David's pursuit of God in verses 6 through 8 in three ways. In remembering God, in singing to God, in clinging to God. Let's read verses 6 through 8. He says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The first aspect of David's pursuit of God that we see is expressed in verse 6, that he remembers God, particularly remembers God at night. And I think it is always telling for us to uh, see what our minds run to when we put our head on the pillow at night. What do we think about? What's the, when we hit the replay button, what, what goes through our, our brains? What are the images that are flashing through our minds? Or even sometimes uh, what's in our dreams, which we obviously we don't have willful uh, command over while we're sleeping, but it, it's still instructive to us to see where our minds go, even in the night. David says that when he's awake at night, he thinks about God. He meditates upon him. He can't stop thinking about this great God who loves him and who satisfies his heart and fills his heart with joy. It's just, you know, you can just kind of picture him laying there and just kind of got a smile on his face as he's thinking about the great relationship that he has with the Lord. Unfortunately for us today, meditation and deep thinking is something that is largely lost today. Because, you know, three things are required for meditation. First is content. You've got to think about something. Second is time. You just need time to spend thinking minutes. And thirdly, you need stillness or quietness. And which of those is in short supply today, right? We have tons of content. Not only do we have the Word of God, but we've got sermons and books and all these sorts of things that can help us set our minds upon the Lord. But we need to carve out time, and we need silence. We need stillness. And yet, there are so many things in our high-tech society that call us away from thinking, from meditating upon the Lord. These devices that we carry in our pockets that, that are forever with us buzzing and glowing can easily distract us. We, we're, we're beginning to wake up as a society that we realize we've got to do something about this. Uh, but the reality is, is if, if we as Christians are going to be God-centered and going to think upon the Word of God and think upon the Lord, we've got to take radical action in our lives. We must create margin in our schedules. We must put these distractions aside, particularly it probably means fighting against our phones, self-control, putting it across the room, giving it to a family member because we're robbing ourselves of the sweet joy of meditation. I mean, David didn't have any of that. He's out in the wilderness. He doesn't have whatever his entertainment was. He didn't have it then. And he could just think on the Lord. We need to try to fight for that if we're going to follow David's example and let our minds drift to God. The second thing we see in David's pursuit of God is his singing. Look in verse 7. For you have been my help, in, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David knows he's secure. He knows David is help, or God is helping him. But it isn't in his uh, position uh, of his own strength. He, he's leaning upon the Lord's strength that he knows he's secure. He, he uses this imagery of the shadow of your wings. And you, you, this is a common phrase you'll find throughout the Bible, particularly the Psalms. And it's a word picture taken of a mother bird sheltering her young and bringing them in close and, and, and protecting them under their, her wings. 
It communicates intimacy and closeness and because you, you, you can't be under the wings without being close. And so therefore, it communicates, as David's using it here, a loving, personal protection. Boom. <laughs> that uh, God is providing for him is loving, personal protection. David knew that being with the Lord is the safest place to be, and that is what caused him to sing. Now, we, we aren't in the dire circumstances that David's in, but we all have our own difficulties. And yet we can take the same confidence David has, that God is our help, our very present help in time of trouble. That we are under the shadow of the wings of the triune God. Because through Christ, not only have we uh, been brought under the wings, but, but the imagery that we get in the New Testament is that we've been adopted into the family of God. We're not just a guy that's been led in the back door and he says, yeah, yeah, you can kind of hunt around for some scraps, but the family's going to be out in the living room. He says, no, come and join us. You're part of the family now. Come and sit at my table. Folks, if you were in Christ this morning, you have been brought close to God. And that should cause us to sing. That gospel truth that we have not been left out in the cold, but we've been brought in and welcomed by the warm love of God should prompt our praise, enable us to sing for joy that we are known by God and sheltered by him. No matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult your circumstances, God is your help. You're sheltered under his wings this morning. Remember that and let that draw you to your God as you pour out your heart before him. But we see also in verse 8 that David's pursuit of God is shown in his, his clinging to the Lord. This, this you think, I think of rock climbing, right? The fingertips that are holding on to the very ledges as he's clinging and holding on in the midst of difficult circumstances. He says, my soul clings to you. And in fact, in the Hebrew, the, the prep, preposition is, is kind of funny. It basically says, my soul clings after you which includes a, a, a kind of a motion, a direction towards it, that it's clinging, but it's also going after. So in other words, it, it, the, this phrase holds the connotations of holding fast and following after. Like a dog on a hunt, David was following the Lord. He was pursuing God, and he was holding on to him no matter what, and nothing was going to shake that confidence. But notice that his confidence in following after God did not rest in his own strength. David was not saying, wow, I'm a great clinger. I can really hold on to God, and that's what's going to get me through. Look at the second phrase of verse 8. Your right hand upholds me. What enables David to have confidence to know that I will cling to the Lord? It's because he's held by a bigger hand. He's held by the hand of God that is upholding him and strengthening him. And friends, this is the two sides of the coin for our own perseverance. How do we know that we're going to stay faithful to God? We're going to press on even in the midst of suffering and difficulty all the way to the end of our days? Well, we, we work hard and we pursue God passionately every day of our life. And yet we know that we do that in the strength of the Lord. Knowing that, that if it were up to us entirely, we would be lost forever but to know that it's God's right hand that upholds us and strengthens us and keeps us faithful. That is what we depend upon. That is what we lean into. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. No one can snatch us out of his hand. So we need to we can learn from David's example here. Are we pursuing after God, thinking upon him, singing to him, clinging to him, following after him? Is this the all-consuming portion of our lives? Lastly this morning, the fourth and final feature of a God-centered life is rejoicing in God. Rejoicing in God. And we see this in verses 9 through 11. 
David says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. It shall be given over to the power of the sword. It shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now in this last section of the psalm, David goes a little bit from being per really intimately personal to being a little bit broader. And he's, he's reflecting upon not just him personally, but also him as a representative of the Davidic dynasty. Remember, God had made a covenant to David and to his family that, that he was going to bless his family in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so there was this sense in which uh, all through the biblical covenants that, that God made a covenant with his people and therefore the people that he made his covenant with were on God's side. And those who opposed his covenant people were against not only the people of Israel and against David, but were against God himself. And so in these verses, we can see that these these enemies are not just David's enemies, but they're really enemies against the Lord himself. And therefore, David can speak with a degree of authority about where God's enemies and where his enemies are going to end up. In verses 9 and 10, we see that, that David reminds himself what is the end of those who work wickedness. Those who aren't doing what he's doing, but instead are, are seeking to destroy his life. He says that, they will be destroyed and devoured. That ultimately, they're going to wind up in the grave. God will have the final say. Even if it looks like they may be prospering now, they will not end that way. Verse 10, he describes this, uh, it's really like a battle scene in its aftermath. This idea that the, the enemy has, it will be defeated by the sword. This idea of, of battle fighting, hand-to-hand -hand combat. But they will be struck down, given over to the power of the sword, he says. And then the bodies of the enemies is going to be strewn across the battlefield for, uh, for jackals to, to pick through after the fact. A gruesome but definitive illustration of the end of those who fight against David and fight against the Lord. And yet, as he's being chased by enemies... And he's in the wilderness, as we've said. He remembers the position that God has given him, that he still is the anointed king. Even though it doesn't look like it, because it looks like he's running out of Jerusalem with his tail between his legs. But he knows that God has ultimately chosen him, and he's not shaken in that belief. He calls himself, verse 11, the king. The king shall rejoice in God. He will exult in God. At the end of the day, he is going to rejoice because he knows who is on his side. And friends, if you are here this morning, you too have a unique position. We're not the anointed king of Israel, but we have a position in Jesus Christ, the anointed son of God, in which we are secure and stable and steadfast no matter what comes our way in this life, no matter what difficulty we go through, no matter what suffering comes our way. We are in Christ and that cannot be touched, that cannot be shaken. And that is a, a position in Christ that we need to remember, need to meditate upon, and need to rest in this morning. No matter what our circumstances may look like, we can know that we are in Jesus Christ, and we can rejoice as David does. We can exult that our names are written in the, in the book of life. We can rejoice that we are known by God even if we are rejected by people here on this earth. But if you are here today and you do not know the Lord, this God that David speaks of is not your God. I encourage you that today you can know him, that he can be your God, that you can center your life upon him. The scriptures call every single person, man, woman, and child, to to repent of their sin, and to call out to Jesus to save them. If you repent of your sin and how you have been living and, and, and turn 180 degrees and trust in Christ and his righteousness, recognizing that it's only in him that you can be righteous before a holy God, then there you will be saved. 
Confess Jesus as Lord right where you are at. There's no hoops you have to jump through. You simply need to repent and believe. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God and he will save you. Call out that he would save you from your sin. God is a God who loves to pour out his riches on those who would believe. He's a generous God, a merciful God. He's not stingy. He's generous and he wants to share his generosity and his love to all. So I invite you to come and, and believe in Christ this morning. If you still have questions about what following Jesus means, I encourage you to come talk to me after the service. I'd love to sit down and open the Bible with you and show you how you can have a living, vibrant relationship with the God of the universe. Well, this look at David's prayer has been instructive for us, has it not? It has challenged us to set our hearts upon the Lord and to passionately pursue him with all that we have for all of our days. And my prayer is that each one of you here would not walk, would not walk out of here half-heartedly seeking to pursue God, but wholeheartedly, passionately looking to give your lives to him in every facet, in every way. And may God be so kind and so gracious as to lead us patiently to that place, recognizing that we cannot do this in our own strength. We need him to do it for us. And so let's pray, asking him to do that now. Father, we thank you for your abundant grace. We thank you that just as David could turn to you in whatever circumstances he was in, so we can turn to you that we can pour out our hearts before you, that we can earnestly seek you and know that you're not a God who's, who's locked himself up and, and doesn't want to show himself or reveal himself, but you have, you've openly displayed yourself in your word. Father, if we are not walking closely with you, it's because we have bought into the lie of sin and we have failed to see how good and how great, how loving you are. I pray, Father, that you would please turn our hearts towards you this morning. Cause us to passionately pursue you with all that we are for all of our days. And we will give you the glory for that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.